This is the Blatcast, a sometimes fast-paced but usually meandering look at the world. Chain, 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 Hosted by Christian Blatt. Chain, 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 chain. Get ready for quite possibly the longest one hour to perhaps the shortest two hours and 56 minutes of your life. And now, here's Christian Blatt. Welcome to the Blackcast. Uh, joined today by Ron Young, who is the lead vocalist for the band Little Caesar. And he has a great new book called Judge This Book by its cover. Ron, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So uh, first and foremost, I will uh, let you know that uh, yesterday when I was, uh, I, I had, uh, I knew I was going to talk to you today and I had uh, not done my homework. I had not read the book and I'm like, well, I'll read 50, hundred pages and I'll at least have a sense for what's <laughs> going on. And uh, it grabbed me right away. And 287 pages later, uh, I had read the entire book. Nice. So, nice. so judge this book by its cover uh, is a great read. And uh, it's a very conversational uh, sort of, you know, style by you. And uh, I was uh, just really uh, taken aback by your story and your honesty. One of the comments in the notes that was sent to me is that it was the most honest book about the music industry that that someone had ever read. And uh, I was like, yeah, it's, it's 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 very honest. And uh, you have a lot to be honest about <laughs> about how it went. Uh, you know, and it's not a story. And here's, that... here's the other interesting thing. When you get to a point in your life that you don't have to, you don't have to put on airs and you don't worry about retributions. You don't worry. You know what I mean? It's like, sure. What are they going to do? Come take my dog. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what's left. So, <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And, uh, you know, it, it, we'll, we'll get into, uh, well, I would say we'd get into all of it, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get into as much as we can, but, uh, you know, reading about, uh, you know, you running afoul of David Geffen, it, uh, it tracks with, uh, in an, in an earlier life, just running things around LA. I had like a, a package to drop off at his house from someone who was like a really good friend of his. And the way that, uh, the people who worked for him wouldn't even let me pull into his driveway without pouncing on my car tells yeah. me what I need to know about yeah. David Geffen. Uh, yeah. But uh, let's uh, let's sort of uh, try and approach this chronologically because that's essentially what you do with the book, and uh, you know you you talk a lot about a really rough upbringing, and I think you're very honest about uh, the fact that your your mother was an alcoholic and depressed, and that uh, you know your siblings were older and they had left home, and. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, I think a lot of people can read that and understand that there's a lot of pain in your life. And then the interesting thing is that because of where you grew up in Queens, you chose even more pain in your life and you decided to become a, a fan of the New York Mets. And yes. uh, I, I go there uh, because uh, yes. I, what I also <laughs> grew up with that. But it was one of my favorite stories in there. Uh, talk a little bit about how you had a couple of things happen when you were really young that uh, it kind of, it, it didn't necessarily give you the bug for performing, but you're like, Oh, I kind of like when people are paying attention to me in, in a good way. 
you know, there there were a couple of things you can uh, certainly start with the with the Mets game, which uh, was just just reading about that was very exciting to me. Yeah, well, it's 1966. You know, Shea Stadium is literally just down the road from where I was living. So, you know, it was, you know, a big part of the social thing to do is just, you know, go grab some hot dogs and watch the Mets in the basement of the National League, you know, <laughs> play poorly yeah. to, you know, to like a one-tenth filled stadium. Um, and they had they were they were trying out this promotion thing where they, they it's called banner day where they let all the fans come down on the field and parade around with banners and they had a competition well my brother got wanted to go to this and my my mom wrangled him into well if you're going to go you got to take your younger brother so he couldn't figure out any way to incorporate me into his idea of some kind of banner thing so he decided that him and another six-year-old buddy of mine were going to have their own little thing. And so at the time, there was this big, you know, smoking campaign for Tarrington cigarettes called, you know, Tarrington smokers would rather fight than switch. And they showed people smoking and they had a black eye, you know. And so they decided to just me and my buddy up in – full-size adult Met uniforms, and the banner said that we'd rather shrink than switch. And so, you know, I thought it was cute. And so where, you know, he brings us down to the field with his banner and our banner. He goes, okay, you guys hold this and you walk around the field and I'll meet you back here in, in 45 minutes or whenever this thing is over. And so we start parading around. The next thing you know, if anybody remembers old school Mets, you know, stars, it was Jerry Grody and there was Ron Swoboda and Tom Seaver. Well, they're all hanging out in the dugout waiting for this silly thing to end. And they see us and they grab us and pull us in the dugout. Make a long story short, we won the grand prize (laughs) and really pissed my brother off, you know, because we were an afterthought to this thing. And, you know, nowadays when you, because I still think they do it. Nowadays, you get like a trip to Hawaii or a car. Well, back in 1966, when they were in the basement, it was a black and white Admiral television and um, a can, a, a case of canned tuna. That was the grand prize. <laughs> so they gave us this thing and we got all this attention. So here I am, six years old, getting all this attention. And there was a show in New York that wound up getting syndicated in a lot of other places called Wonderama back then. And it was a kid's show on the weekends. And so somebody read about us and they invited us to be the stars on Wonderama. And so we go down and we're on a, you know, a TV show in New York. And we got to meet one of the other guests on the show was Burt Ward who played Robin in Batman. So got to meet Burt Ward and our names are in the TV guide. And then right around the same time, uh, there was this big, you know, where I lived was this big giant apartment complex and they had this big Olympic sized pool. And we used to hang out there in the summers. Well, at the time the mayor was this guy, John Lindsay. And so to go press the flesh and meet his constituents, he came down to this giant pool and, grabbed me and stuck me on his lap. And the next thing I know, there's a cover, a picture of me and the mayor on, on the New York Post on the front page. <laughs> and shortly after that, um, I'm in kindergarten and the TV show Candy Camera came down to shoot. They wanted to do some stuff with kids, you know, because kids do the darndest things and say the darndest things. And Next thing I know, I'm on, you know, a national TV show with ice cream cones trying to open up a door. So all of this goes on in my life. Oh, and then the final thing was at the same pool, they used to have live bands play. And so here I am, six years old, and they had this cover band. And, you know, I saw all the attention that people were giving these guys in the band. And I went up and said, I, I want to sing a song with you guys. And they like thought it was really funny that a six-year-old saying, 
And they were like, so what song do you know? And I was like, my baby does the hanky panky. So <laughs> when a six-year-old singing, you know, my baby does the hanky, and coming out of the mouth of a six-year-old, they thought was absolutely hysterical. And so did the hundreds of people down at this pool. So all of this happens in like a six-month period of my life. And I'm like, I really like this, you know, trying to get up and get attention, you know, thing. And it definitely started me down the path, you know, of wanting to be in the public eye, you know, as uh, just as dangerous as heroin was later in my life, but nonetheless, you know, right, just just, uh, just as addictive, you know, it's uh, totally. I, I remember uh, somebody. Uh, I, oh, it was uh, comedian Norm Macdonald once talked about uh, gambling. It's like it, it's the only disease you can have where you might end up with a bunch of money. You know, so, yes. you know, all of these things are very addictive <laughs> yeah. in their own way, but show business yes. would be another one of those. It's, it's, totally. you know, it's a, it's, it can be infectious in the way that you're getting a lot of attention and, and uh, also a lot of money. So uh, I, I touched on it briefly and, you know, there's what we're talking about, all these great moments, all this great attention, but uh, just take a moment and and sort of summarize how your home life was kind of the opposite of that. In the book, I, I made sure I wrote it out exactly the way you did a direct quote. You say, my mother was an alcoholic, period, a crazy fucking bitch. So yes. those, are, those are your words about your mom. Yes, <laughs> uh, yes. But uh, and from, from having read the book, I'm like, okay, yeah, I, I think uh, he earned those two sentences by his explanation. Yeah, no, no doubt. And this is the thing, you know, when you're a kid, you have nothing to compare your life to. Your life is just your life when you're five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven 10, 11 years old. And, you know, it's not until you start getting older that you realize there's something not quite right and, no, and normal about your home life. And so for years, you just go on thinking that mom's just you know, guzzle vodka and sing along to Ray Charles music. You know, that's just what moms do, you know. Uh, you know, make you cook your own dinner at nine years old, you know. <laughs> so yeah. it, it was it was chaotic to say the least. And as you pointed out, my brother and sister who were like nine and ten years older than me out of self-preservation, they bailed out really early. They pulled the ripcord and got the hell out of that situation. And it kind of left me, you know, there, the last man standing, so to speak. And, you know, it's not till later in life when these things formulate your own behaviors and your own coping skills, so on and so forth, that you start to see the actual dysfunction. But at the time, it's just, it's just your reality. Yeah, and uh, I think uh, you know it, uh, it. It makes sense that uh, you would be in a rush to also get out of that situation yourself. But uh, you did touch on the one thing that your mom singing along to Ray Charles. It does seem that you know you <coughs> grew up around. You did grow up around music, and one of the things you put in the book when you were talking about it was what a huge part of our culture music was. And in a lot of ways, it isn't in the same way because of the fact that it's so readily available. Uh, I, I, you didn't say this, but as I was reading it, I was thinking about the fact that for all the people who, you know, take the time and they want to get, you know, their music on vinyl and sit down and make an event of listening to it. Most people uh, have a device just like I do, a little cell phone, and they, uh, they stream what they listen to and they never buy anything. And I, I still, I, I love album artwork. I love liner notes. Uh, if it comes with lyrics, I, I, I'm still in heaven, but I understand that it's not as big a deal. But uh, growing up, it seems like it was really one of only a, a few things that would be in your life that would have been enjoyable was uh, you know sitting down and listening to music. Yeah, music is really, I think people have gotten spoiled. You know, like you say, it's like, you know, it's like, when I was a kid reading this cereal box, I was the same way. You wanted to read the liner notes. You wanted to look for all those little things. But but decades ago, you know, without all the technology that we have now, you've got, you know, you had four channels on a TV. You had 
theaters and you had radio and that was everybody's source of escape entertainment um how they experience culture when i was 11 12 years old you know as i start getting into puberty and you start having all these sexual feelings and everything i turned to robert plant to to tell me about my feelings that was where i used to go to to get a release for all of these feelings and music sonically provided this escape in my crazy environment and all the different types of music that was you know available i mean this at this point it's you know we're talking late 60s into the late 70s which to me you know as old men always say well, that was the best period of music you know <laughs> Sure. But, but it really was. You had everything from the Beatles to Led Zeppelin to Black Sabbath to Bad Company to, you know, there was a million, the band, you know, all the brothers, Grateful Dead. I mean, there was a million. And then all the R&B music, all the Motown and, and, and the blues music. And there was such a huge variety of music. And depending on what you wanted to feel, you would drop that piece of vinyl down or you would drop that cassette into the player in the later years and it would take you somewhere. And, you know, now we're spoiled that we can just pick up our phone or pick up our laptop and, you know, but when, when I'm 16 and I'm trying to figure out what sex is and Robert Plant's telling me, well, I'm going <laughs> to squeeze that lemon till the juice <laughs> runs down my leg. Yeah, you know, exactly. if you type in squeeze that lemon to the juice runs down my leg into Pornhub, you're going to get some really <laughs> freaky visual, you know? Uh, yeah. And, and, have, don't, and, and don't, and don't be surprised at how many views that video already has. Oh, I know. It's like, <laughs> wow, there's a lot of people into lemons and insertions, you know, it's yeah. like that must sting, you know, but <laughs> when you're, when I was a kid back then, that, that music was the way to 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 find out about these things, and I and I think so many other things now occupy people's consciousness that it's diminished the power of music, and uh, I think it 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 the the fact that you know, like you're saying, all of these revenue streams have dried up in music. People don't buy yeah. hard copies of music anymore. Now the music business is put out a piece of music so that you get enough attention so that you can sell the data from your YouTube videos. It's not about the record anymore. It's can you put out a piece of music that attracts enough eyeballs so that you can sell ads to them on YouTube or sponsorships through your tweets or but it's not about the revenue doesn't come from the music anymore. It comes from the attention that the music brings you. It's right. And, and, and you know, for, for so many acts, obviously the, the, the focus, it's sort of the reverse of the period you're talking about where, you know, you used to, you used to tour to let people know you had a new album out. Now the album is also for all the things you said, it's an excuse to, you know, go on a show and promote the fact that you have these live dates, but the real money doesn't come from the performance of the concert. It comes from the fact that uh, you get 30 seconds to take a picture with the band beforehand, and maybe they'll sign one thing for a thousand dollars. And, you know, yeah. for bands who can do it and people who want to pay it, it's like, I'm not even disparaging it, but it's like, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, bands on a smaller level, it's oh, it, it can be like, well, for $100, you get a, a Q&A and you can come to soundcheck. I can see that. I've done that myself, you know, but, uh, yeah. you know, the, the business model is less about the actual music, the recording of it, the playing of it, uh, the performing of it. Uh, I agree that, uh, you know, it's it's all this this ancillary stuff because you still have people with, uh, you know, trying to get a piece of the pie. It's just it's just a different pie than there used to be, I guess, you know, to totally different. It, it's like, well, can we let's finish the pie so that we can clean out the tin and sign <laughs> it and sell it backstage? <laughs> you know, so whatever. Yeah. yeah.
No, exactly. Uh, well, before we get to, to your arrival in the music industry, we were talking a moment ago about how focused you were on getting out of your house and the fact that you go to college. And I loved reading about how you went to college with the best of intentions. But uh, then <laughs> your, I think your, it was your friend's girlfriend was like the, the heiress to the company that made Quaaludes. Uh, so mm -hmm. explain how suddenly opportunity uh, really knocked in a way that uh, getting good grades didn't seem like the, the most necessary uh, revenue stream, speaking of which. Well, you know, when you turn 18 years old and you, you live in a household with an alcoholic, the opportunity that college presents itself is not about academics, it's about freedom. So I got the hell out of and went to college and used the fact that academics was came pretty easy to me to get into a good, you know, college. And when I got out to college, they happened to stick me on one of the party dorm <laughs> floors, which I look at as fate more than I looked at as anything else. But, you know, you had a choice to either find a balance between your extracurricular and your curricular activities. And I just went full tilt for the, you mean I can listen to the music as loud as I want, be as hammered as I want. Right upstairs is a whole floor of women my age. And so the academia part instantly went out the window. <laughs> and we immediately just focused in on the fun that all the freedom had allowed. And I should have known then that I had a propensity to overindulge. And then, yeah, when opportunity presented itself for fortunately a short period of time, where I, we basically had a bowl of quaaludes. Now, for, for people that, you know, might be a little bit younger, you know, quaaludes is like taking every great euphoric thing that's in every great drug ever invented and put it to one. It made you horny. It made you happy. It's like a little bit of ecstasy mixed with a little, it, it was, <laughs> they had to get rid of it really fast. And so anyway, that was very much, um, it was very prevalent at that point of my life. And we really enjoyed the indulgence of it. And it got me into a lot of trouble. But it also got me to decide, well, let the, I'll boil it down. Some people, there's, you get a 4.0, which is a perfect grade point average. People that do really bad in school get a 1.0 grade point average. My last semester, I had a 0 0.10 grade point average. <laughs> I don't think, I think this, you couldn't get a zero. So that's when it was time to leave college and move into New York City and just chase music. Yeah, and I think that uh, that was uh, sort of an interesting step, obviously, because you're in New York City at that time period and just, you know, I think it's it's the late 70s, early 80s. It's that time period where there's just so much music and so many different kinds of music. And, yeah. uh, you know, you, you weren't even necessarily, I'm going to be in a band right away, but uh, you start to just kind of hang around so many different you know people and just the venues and you start to get a feel for it so i thought it was interesting that the first band you ended up in was called uh, kingpin and uh it was a rockabilly sort of a band and uh you know i think it, it seems like you had let's say you know middling success there but i did love the story you told about getting the opportunity to open for someone you'd never heard of stevie ray vaughn yeah. And uh, I, so I wanted you to kind of kind of take a moment and explain watching him, but then also uh, how cool of a guy he was after the show. Yeah, the quick backstory and that was I was in this rockabilly band. We were just in a van and we were driving really from city to city. Anybody that would book us, we would drive there and play. So we did a show in Ohio where I met. Uh, there was a guitar player in a band called The Big Boys. Chris Gates, who winds up playing in Junkyard, who we're about to go out and do a bunch of shows. That's how far back I go with Chris. Chris gets us these shows down in Texas, where he's from. And we show up and we play at this place called Fitzgerald's in Houston, which was a, a great venue. I think it's probably still there. And 
you know, we finish our set and the place is packed and this next band gets up, you know, and it's Stevie Ray Vaughan. And we're standing on the side of the stage and from the first note, we're like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> oh my God. This man is from another planet. And just completely blown away. And at how stupid we were. I thought it was Stevie Ravon, R-A-V-E-O-N. I thought, what a what kind of a Texas Yahoo name is Rave On, you know? And yeah. it was Ravon, you know. So we're completely stupefied by his playing. And we go back to this shitty little motel. It turns out it's the same motel that he's staying at. And there's a knock on the door. We're all crammed into one hotel, sharing beds, and you know, and and it's his tour manager saying Stevie wants to hang out with you guys and come to his room. So we go over to his room and he offers us a bunch of Jack Daniels and he's just being cordial as hell, being really complimentary about our music. And then he throws this envelope on the bed and says, listen, I know you only got like 200 bucks and you're out living in a van. That's not enough money. So out of his own pocket, he threw us a few hundred bucks, which who does that? You know, except yeah. someone that's just incredibly genuine, genuinely just just a good goddamn person, you know? And we did a few shows with him. And then funny enough, we came back to New York and we did a show opening up for his brother in Fabulous Thunderbirds. And and we get ready. It was a place called the, the Lone Star Cafe. So we're getting ready to go. You know, it was two shows a night. So we get ready to go on stage and the dressing room door won't open. And it's because Jimmy Vaughn is holding the door and he refused to let us go out on stage until we start drinking with him. Because <laughs> he, he had mentioned to his brother Stevie that we were opening and he was like, Stevie says you guys like to drink a bit, so let's have some cocktails. <laughs> and he got us completely wasted. So just a super nice family and what a treat it was to – this is before Stevie Ray was signed. You know, he just just about to start recording with David Bowie and just getting ready to go in to do his solo record. So it was just just such a great moment in musical history to be able to witness. Yeah, and uh, for somebody that's such a you know unique, brilliant, singular talent, you know, kind of like oh a once in a lifetime guy. Yeah, to, once to get to see them in in that setting uh, has has got to be fantastic. Uh, so. You know, if if you were making, you know, a, a, a fictional story about uh, about a musician who starts a band and makes it big and makes good. And then, you you know, you've got the, the first act of that fictional story would be a very much the first act of Little Caesar. And yes. just, you know, I was I was familiar with the band. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But uh, I, I had uh, no idea how all the stars were aligned in a way that like, yes, of course this band should be huge, but oh, yeah. take, a mo take a moment to talk about the positioning of those stars and how, I guess, I don't know, they got engulfed by a black hole or the sun swallowed up the stars. I'm not quite sure what happened. Yes. The, the proverbial, so many celestial bodies cannot exist in one spot without it turning into a black hole. <laughs> exactly. um, well, so yeah, I wound up moving out to Los Angeles and put this band together, mostly uh, because I couldn't be in a glam metal band. I, I, I was too rough and tumble, and I sang too... I didn't sing in the pretty sort of pop style that was really being popularized at the time. So we put this band together, and the first show that we do happens... Uh, Jimmy Iovine's assistant happens to be there. Um, and... The day after our first show, I get a phone call from Jimmy Iovine. He gets my phone number where I'm working, and I talk to him for two hours at the phone at the messenger company that I'm working at. And by the end of that conversation, Jimmy's managing the band. And, you know, Jimmy winds up getting a bidding war around the band. You know, once Jimmy is involved, all these labels are throwing checks at you. 
So we wound up signing with Geffen to the largest record deal ever signed to a new band in the history of the music business at the time. So we start working with the infamous John Kaladner of ACDC, Aerosmith, you know, um, fame. Yeah, the guy, he, the guy who, you know, it, 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 speaking of liner notes, he would usually be listed as John Kaladner space, John Kaladner. Like he, every his role time, was, his role was his being name. John Kaladner, yeah. That's his name, twice. Yeah. And that's the ego that the man has. And he walked <laughs> around in a white linen suit with long blonde hair and John Lennon glasses like he was some guru, you know, and... So we have Jimmy Iovine, we've got John Kaladner. John Kaladner brings Bob Rock aboard to produce the record. Now this is before Bob is a famous producer. He at this point is a really successful engineer doing Aerosmith and he just finished off the cult record. So we've got, you know, Bob Rock of Metallica fame, you know, John Kaladner of Aerosmith, ACDC fame, Jimmy Iovine of just, you know, Tom Petty, Fleetwood Mac, you know, turns into a, a billionaire literally when he sells beats. So we've got these three people and, and a major label all involved. And as meteoric and as powerful as the ascent of the band was, literally within a five-week window, it completely imploded. And everything that could possibly go wrong in a five week window to the point where all of these very famous people who have a legacy to protect now want to disassociate themselves as quickly as they did associate themselves with your rising star. As soon as things out of their control went wrong, they all were jumping off the spaceship as quickly as they could and left us in the wake. And it was really not a damn thing we could do at that point. Well, one of the things you talk about is uh, the record itself, the the debut Little Caesar album. And, you know, you were talking about Bob Rock producing it. And in the book, you talk about how he left for a little while to go do another record, which we then find out was Motley Crue's Dr. Feelgood. So then he comes back and then he's kind of got all this juice and do you feel that because of that, people were less likely to intervene? The fact that you were all up in Vancouver, nobody wanted to get on a plane. So he was really left to his own devices. It seemed like you were exactly very vocal right. about wanting the record to sound different, but he's like, well, I'm Bob Rock, so we're going to do it this way. Yeah, it, it was, It was. you know, we started when we first met with Bob and he was just really a, a phenomenally successful engineer. And we were like, well, we want you to produce and we want to produce a record that's sort of like a 70s throwback, very organic, very honest, leaving all the personality and the performances to be heard and get away from this overproduced style of hair metal that was prevalent for 10 years. And he loved that concept. So we started making the record and that's exactly what we did. And then right in the middle of that record, you know, uh, the record Dr. Feelgood that he had produced for Motley Crue got released. And all of a sudden it went from, you know, Bob making a Little Caesar record to Little Caesar making a Bob Rock style record. And like you said, we're up in Vancouver. Nobody's going to tell Bob Rock, you know, who's now the world that he should change his approach to this new band that nobody's heard of. And John Kalabner not going to go against him. And Jimmy Iovine at this point is, you know, like, well, you know, let's wait and listen to what the mixes sound like. But at this point, it was so far gone that it was a it was a freight train that we couldn't we couldn't change the course of. Right, and uh, during that uh, that window, uh, Little Caesar gets uh, sent out to go on tour with Kiss. And a lot of your your story and in the book is a lot of missed opportunities. And uh, I'm going to uh, share with you and our visual audience. Uh, there's there's two images here, but the one on the left is the one that matters. The second concert ah, that I ever went to Middletown was Kiss at the Orange County Fairgrounds in Middletown, New York. But in uh, keeping with the theme of missed opportunities, 
uh, I did miss the first band that day. So you were almost the third band that I ever saw in my life. But my my buddy's uncle, he was a, you know, a, a little bit of a, of a, like the proverbial slacker. His car stopped working halfway there. We had to, you know, make some quick fixes from some random neighbors, you know, of the highway. And uh, we made it in time for slaughter. So I actually never got to see your band. But well, here, here's one of the other interesting things. You say it says 8 p.m. I'd say half the shows we did with Kiss, it would say show starts at 8 p.m. And Gene Simmons would put us on at 7.45 for 30 minutes. So oh, basically wow. people would come into the arena and they'd see 15 minutes of the band. And a re <laughs> part of the reason for this was Gene was starting to get the, the reviews from the cities the day or so after the shows. And everybody was talking about this opening band that was totally different than all the hair metal kind of stuff. And how were this, you know, and Gene didn't like that. Yeah, no, I think that, uh, you know, a, a, an opening act getting attention is that's, that's what, you know, is the beginning of Kiss's career. You know, bands uh, didn't want to go yes. on after them. Bands would only let them have half the stage, but this right. era that you were there, uh, but uh, it, the interesting thing is you write about it, you sort of got an understanding of Gene Simmons and you got to know him a little bit, the good and the bad. Um, oh, yes. But my favorite story in there, and you know, look, I don't want to give away all your stories in the book, but if you could talk about the, the sound guy in the, in the fire red suit, uh, it's just yeah, it's such yes. a funny story. The magic and the monster that is Gene Simmons all rolled into one. Yeah, when we first started out on the tour, okay, so Kiss at this point, a guy that I wound up becoming buddies with, Gary Corbett, was playing keyboards to double sure. up all of Paul's rhythm good parts and hit samples for all those big, giant background vocals. So Kiss was very pioneering in using some of that technology. It was triggered all by keyboards. And well, some would say that uh, they're pioneering in uh, using a lot more of those than they did at that time. But that's yes. not something that you're saying. That's just something I'm saying. It's one of those, some would say, but anyway, back some to your point. Some would say, about, yes. Back so to anyway, your point so, about 1990, yeah. Yeah, so Gene Simmons is notoriously vicious on sound men and especially monitor engineers because Gene would say, I'd like to hear more of, you know, uh, more of the vocal in the mix, what he was saying in the monitors, what he was saying was he wanted to hear more of the, the keyboard parts. So anyway, so he fired a key, a, a monitor engineer and this new guy shows up like the second day we're there. And every day he's walking around like in this same sort of, what's like a NASCAR crew pit crew uh, suit. And we're like, and he's got the same hat on and with the patches and everything. On. And we're like, wow, this dude is a NASCAR fan because he's wearing <laughs> this thing every day. So every day, especially being the new guy, Gene is yelling at him, yelling at him. And every time Gene yells at him, the guy goes like that. And he just holds up his hand for like a couple of minutes and does what he's got to do with his other hand on the board. Anyway, long story short, Gene keeps yelling at this guy. And finally, the guy decides he's had enough. So he gets in a cab and he goes to the airport. And what he did was he put up this cardboard cutout. <laughs> of uh, He got it from like AutoZone of this guy in a pit crew suit holding up his hand, wearing the exact costume. This guy knew in a head in advance that Gene was probably going to cheat him like crap. So he set up this whole thing wearing this whole outfit and put up this cardboard cutout of the guy doing this because the cardboard cutout <laughs> was doing exactly what he was doing for like three, four days. Right. And he left. And Gene's yelling at this cardboard cutout while it's just like this, you know? And Gene's like, I need this and I need that. And it's like, gone. Well, Gene goes over there to yell at him, sees it's a cardboard cutout, he throws it, he's all angry. <laughs> And well, long story short, they send a cab out to the airport to find this guy and bring him back. And they kissed and made up. And then the yeah. guy didn't wear the suit for the rest of the tour. <laughs> well, the interesting thing is that, uh, so uh, from that night, 
that I that I saw Kiss. That was the first time I saw them. Uh, the second headliner that I ever saw uh, in June June seventeenth, nineteen ninety. I do remember Gene basically pointing at his ears a lot. You could tell he was really upset with his sound person. So I'm reading this and it just brings it back. You're not talking about that day probably, but I was just like, oh yeah, he really had a big problem with uh, whoever was doing Yeah, no, he was day. notoriously bad on sound age, on yeah. their engineers, yeah. But you did you did have some uh, some interesting stories, you know, some, some good stuff about uh, getting to know Gene. Uh, one of them, I, I guess you guys ended up, you know, jamming, you guys were in, I think in Poughkeepsie and it was like an off night. And so you guys ended up, uh, it, basically hanging out in a bar with Gene, right? Yeah. Uh, the arena that we were playing at, it was like this complex and the hotel was right next to the arena. And there was some, you know, like they are now these other bars, like a sports bar type thing. Well, it was it was an off night. We had, we got there early, and so we went over to this little bar to just have some beers. And there's like this stage set up with just some equipment on it. And the next thing you know, Gene floats into the bar, which is really uncommon for Gene. He didn't do it, but he must have been bored in the hotel. And Gene just out of nowhere goes, "You guys want to jump up and start jamming?" And we're like, "Of course!" And all of a sudden. You know, like I said, the magic and the monster that is Gene Simmons, the, the legend. He he is a huge fan of music and he has sure. an incredible vocabulary of music and knows so many great songs because he's a huge fan. Motown, the Beatles. So we're, he's just calling out songs and we're just jamming there for hours. And he just had this huge grin on his face for the whole night. And you could just see how much he loves music, you know, and it was just such a treat because it was so easy going and it had nothing to do with business or spectacle or merchandise or legend or any of that. It was just a bunch of guys that just loved music, taking over this little bar with like 25 people in it. And it was just such a, a treat. Yeah. Uh, a, a few years later, I would be uh, going to college in Poughkeepsie, New York. I went to Marist College in Poughkeepsie. Ah. And the, the fact that you guys couldn't find anything to do that night uh, does not surprise me. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. And uh, I've been to a wedding at that uh, that uh, hotel that's connected to, <laughs> to the, the venue. <laughs> um, so uh, before we move on from Gene and Kiss, I have to ask you the same thing uh, that uh, I, I... So I've talked uh, to Mark Slaughter a number of times from the band Slaughter, and I always get him to do a Gene Simmons impersonation. Obviously, he was on that tour as well. So, so many people have one. Do you have a Gene impression, or is I, that not I, in your toolkit? It's not in my toolkit. Okay. It really isn't. It, it, I, I am sure, especially because Mark was out for a lot longer with Gene. Um, so, no, I don't have an impression. It's especially because... You know, he can be so, you know, gene, yeah. pontificating <laughs> all the time. So that's yeah. about as good as I can get. Yeah. And, and you know, Marx basically is the fact, you know, it would be Gene saying, I don't want to talk badly about Vinny, who, you know, he had worked with Vinny Vincent. Right. And, Vinny Vincent yeah, Vinny, Vinny and then, Vincent, yeah. and then Gene and would talk spend, badly. And then yeah. Gene would spend an hour <laughs> talking badly about Vinny Vincent. <laughs> so, yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, look, there's no shortage of people who can talk badly about Vinny Vincent. But to yeah. circle back to your career, uh, there are probably also uh, some people that you can talk badly about. And I think, look, there are times where you read stories or you hear interviews about bands who, it just doesn't quite happen. I've never heard anything like what happened to you that right as the video for Chain of Fools gets into heavy rotation at MTV, people can't buy the CDs or cassettes. Right. Talk about how that happened. And I, I've literally never heard anything like that. Now, obviously, you know, you could get it on your phone and you'd be able to stream it and you'd be able to, you know, get exactly. it on iTunes. But in 1990, that's not what's going to happen. So talk about, talk right. about what so this happened. Is, this is pre-internet days. Everything has to do with records in stores. So literally while we were out with Kiss within a three week window, this is what happened. We're out on tour with Kiss. First of all, Gene is trying to get us off the tour because since we replaced Winger, 
once Winger was ready to come back out, Gene needed to bring him back to increase ticket sales. So we have Gene fighting to get us off the tour. We find out, and I get these phone calls while I'm in a Motel 6 on tour with Kiss, that the record label was just sold. David Geffen just sold the label to this Japanese conglomerate. And our records, which were in Warner Brothers warehouses, now need to be shipped over to BMG warehouses. So in that lull of a few weeks, we're on MTV in heavy rotation, and you can't get our records in the stores because there's no warehouse that anybody can figure out where they are. So that's happening. At the same period of time, the label manager that's in charge of the whole marketing plan at DGC Records gets fired for masturbating on his secretary. So literally, there's no one running the show. So... And then the final nail in the coffin was we get a phone call from David Geffen saying that you need to fire your manager, Jimmy Ivey, because Jimmy is starting up a company called Interscope Records. And so in the state of California, legally, you cannot be a record distributor and a manager by law. So what had happened was Jimmy Ivey decided that he made an announcement. He's starting up Interscope Records. David called him and said, I want you to do the distribution through Geffen. Jimmy told David to go screw off. He didn't want to have anything to do with him. And David got really offended by that, decided to take it out through Little Season as in, in 10 different areas. But the first thing was going to be, watch this. We're going to, I'm going to get you to, to be fired by your band. So this all would happen in a three-week period. And we're out on tour. We can't do anything to fix it. Uh, we don't have a manager that's got any weight at the label because he has to quit or be fired. We don't have anybody managing the label anymore because high on ecstasy and cocaine, he decided to masturbate on his secretary or ejaculate on his secretary. And uh, pretty rock and roll thing to do, by the way. Yeah, um, I mean, look, I think everybody can have a story about the fact that in a lot of ways, record execs seem to basically stand around with their dick in their hand. But then this one ah, literally did it and it, got him, and it got him fired. Good one, yes. Yeah. You know, I, is, I jotted that down when I was reading. Yes, good, good one. <laughs> I got to remember that one. Um, yeah, well, this is, you know, this is that period of time when, you know, there are legends. I don't mention the gentleman's name because he's changed his life and he's a great guy, always has been a great guy. And like myself, uh, this was his dark period of consumption of, you know, illegal substances. Sure. And this was his, this was his bottom. Um, it affected my life and my career, but I hope I harbor no ill will toward the man, you know, um, but it definitely, his life imploded on him. And uh, like a secretary, kind of splashed all over us a bit. And, uh, you know, there was some fallout from it. And um, this all, like I said, happened in a three to four week window where our meteoric rise to fame went into the toilet and not to, not to be resurrected. Yeah. And I mean, I think that, uh, you know, it's, uh, th that's sort of an interesting turn in the book in the sense that I guess David Geffen sort of takes a dislike to you because you had the audacity to, you know, give one, your honest opinion and two call attention to the fact that, you know, basically they were mismanaging your band. So, uh, you know, some bands might be able to recover from this moment and then have a, a second record come out that's even bigger uh, and, you know, makes the big splash. But uh, it, it seems like the, the second record, you know, just all the stars were again now aligned against you because the people who were in your corner originally now really didn't want you to succeed. Yeah. Now, now they just want you to go away. They want you yes, to quietly exactly. go away and when you get a personal vendetta from, you know, David Geffen was a billionaire at this point. Yeah. He sold the label and, and here's this little band with this tattooed, you know, biker dude that's speaking truth to power. And he decided he would rather snuff me out than 
helped me succeed. And, you know, it's just the rough and tumble world of the music business. And I, I, I don't even hold any ill will toward him either. He's protecting his business, so to speak. Um, I happen to be in the crosshairs of that, that judgment call. But, you know, if I had a, a huge corporation to protect, I'd want to bury any bad stories about me, too. Yeah. And then uh, you talk about how you uh, learn the hard way what a key man clause is in a contract, yes. because the second album kind of just comes and goes almost right away. And then the plan is great. All right. We're going to be out of this contract and then we can get things started. But then you get held and, and you talk about how basically the same thing had happened to Don Henley, you know, because he has that huge, uh, I think the album's also called edge of the innocence, that huge album at the end of the eighties. And then as you point out, he doesn't put anything out for 10 years because he didn't want to work for David Geffen. So he would rather right. not work. And when you're Don Henley and you can go like, great, I'm going to put the Eagles back together, even though I said hell would freeze over. Uh, I'll just go and do that. When your fallback job is, you know, the band with the number one selling greatest hits album of all time. Yeah. It, it's a little easier to not put out music. Yep. So yeah, your side gig, you're, you got a pretty good side gig. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, your 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 safety net is is to you know go hang out with Glenn Fry and Joe Walsh. Yeah, exactly. Let's yeah, let's put the band back together. <laughs> so uh, and and then you know you're you're very honest about how it was all just too much for you, and then you spend a number of years just what smoking heroin every single day is from what it sounded like. Oh, many times a day too. Yeah, sure. right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You kind of have to. Um, yeah, you know what? It, it spun me into this cycle of self-pity and depression. And it's understandable, but my coping skills, especially with my upbringing, was to, you know, when things don't feel good, just get numb. And me and my ignorance, I always thought, you know, because my drug of choice was always success in music. I learned from my mother to not overindulge i was the least indulgent guy in the band but once all of this crashed and burned i started to self-medicate and try to kill the pain the next thing i know i became physically addicted to you know one of the most addicting substances on earth and wound up in that really dark cycle and pattern for about seven years and uh lost everything over it you know yeah, I thought it was interesting because as I'm reading it, uh, you know, and usually when you hear these stories, there does need to be the the rock bottom moment for the person. Oh, yeah. Every, everyone encouraging you, it's not going to matter. You have to want to do it. And the fact that your rock bottom wasn't, you know, going to meetings and basically only going to meetings just so you could meet up with your, your heroin guy in the parking lot and then you would yeah. you know, smoke in your truck. And it's more like you talked about losing everything. It was your you know, eventual uh, ex-wife, and uh, I guess it was one of your bandmates, they put all of your belongings into a storage locker and basically your life was reduced to a key, right? That was the moment yep. where you were like, yeah. Yep, that was, that was pretty much the wake up moment that I had played every card in the deck. Um, yeah. And you know, that's kind of what has to happen for most people is they have no more good options, no more little back doors, no more little scams. Um, and you got to go through a lot of pain. And it just that's just what has to happen. And that's what happened. And lo and behold, you know, it became the turning point of my life. So yeah. And uh, so obviously, you know, you're able to get yourself uh, into uh, recovery. And, uh, you know, then you have your, uh, you know, then you're able to reconnect with someone from earlier in your life who's your current wife. Uh, so uh, talk about sort of having that person arrive back into your life at the, at the right moment when you were ready to have somebody back in your life. Yeah, well, back in, back in the whole heyday of the music business, Geffen had hired, and Jimmy Ivey had hired an outside publicist, this woman, Renee, um, who I worked with closely via the phone while we were out on tour with Kiss, and we became friends, and, you know, we stayed in contact for years, and then 
you know, when everything had crashed and burned and resurrected in my life, it, it wound up being that she wound up becoming single when I was single. And so we started, you know, we always had feelings for each other that we, you know, never really explored. And then we did. And, you know, lo and behold, this very long-term friendship um, blossomed into this great romance. And we're together to this day and we're partners and she knows all my secrets and all my dirt and all my history and loves me for it anyway. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so it's, it's a good thing. And, uh, I thought it, it was, it was telling of how well she knew you because, you know, you didn't say, Hey, I was thinking of trying to do music again. She kind of knew what an important part of your life it had been. So she really encouraged you to eventually, you know, starting to get back out there and doing Little Caesar, but just the idea of exploring music. So talk about what that's meant for your life and the fact that Little Caesar now currently does go out. And, you know, you mentioned you're going to be heading out on the road with Junkyard. So uh, talk about putting the band back together, literally, <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, and just having it be sort of an added layer to a, a much fuller life than it was when your life kind of revolved around having the band Little Caesar. Yeah, well, when everything crashed and burned in like 94, there were 92 it was, you know, the, the band all went our separate ways. We all loved each other still and stayed close. We were family. And then back in around 2010, 2011, we, we decided to get together and just have fun and play songs. And the next thing you know, we were like, you know, we have some song ideas and this is a lot of fun. We all healed from our, our wounds that healed from the corporate approach to making music. And we decided to make a pact to each other that we would do this not as a journey of the wallet, but one of the spirit. And we've been doing it ever since now. It's like, 10 12 years and we've done you know we tour europe once twice a year we go out and do weekend runs around the u.s um and it's purely for the music it's not for money it's not for fame it's nothing but making music you know making the music that we love with guys that we love for people that we love and it keeps it all honest and fresh and simple and rooted in the most important factor. Right, absolutely. So uh, I think that uh, the fact that if you weren't doing it, your life wouldn't necessarily have you know a gaping hole in it. But then it is it is there, sort of to complement what is already going on. And uh, I'm glad to hear that uh, you're still active because. As discussed earlier, uh, I, I missed the band 33 years ago. So hopefully I still get a chance to, to see you guys somewhere down the road and uh, finally uh, get to see uh, Little Caesar. Uh, the, the one final thing that I, I wanted to talk to you, uh, and again, we're talk, we've been talking for almost an hour uh, with Ron Young, who's been very generous of his time. The new book, Judge This Book by Its Cover, is, uh, is a great book. As I told him at the beginning of our conversation, I thought I was only going to read a little of it, and uh, I literally couldn't put it down. So uh, please check it out. Um, during the, the band's ascent, there was kind of a, a very interesting group of champions that you had. Uh, and by the way, before I get into that, Dominicus Saxon in the chat says that uh, I could listen to Ron's stories for another hour easy. So uh, obviously, you. If, you, if you read the book, uh, you know, there's there's plenty of stories that I wanted to tell. Uh, but uh, you'll you'll have to uh, get to the book to get all of them. Uh, I just uh, take sir. a moment to talk about what it meant uh, to the band, the, the support that you know, maybe added to a reputation you didn't want to have, but uh, th there was this really strong support by the Hells Angels, wasn't there? Hells Angels and a lot of other motorcycle clubs too. Sure, we wound yeah. up getting affiliated just by doing some shows for the Hells Angels and then kind of pulling it, uh, uh, pulling us under their wing, so to speak. And it's sort of like picking up a little puppy. They really can't wiggle away. You just kind of got to sit there, but. Yeah, we just, you know, being being real motorcycle riders and motorcycle builders back in the period of the hair metal days, there weren't a lot of blue collar, down to earth, you know, motorcycle riding type bands. And so when we came out, 
um, we immediately became affiliated with the, the motorcycle community. Easy Rider magazine and Iron Horse and all these magazines were doing articles on us. And the next thing you know, that's attracting a whole lot of motorcycle clubs around the country. And there were some shows that there was tension in the parking lot, so to speak, between rival motorcycle clubs to the point where the cops had to come out, you know, a, a few nights showing up with like riot gear on. And we're like, we're just trying to play a rock show. We didn't think this was going to turn into some kind of power struggle between motorcycle clubs in the area. And that kind of followed us. And it actually got me into trouble because we were doing a bunch of, you know, we had to be wound up, you know, becoming affiliated, you know, or a little bit more deeply by doing shows and such to the point where the FBI opened up a file on me. And they were tapping my phone, I found out, for a couple of years. And then when they realized that we had nothing to do with any illicit activities, it was purely a friendship and a camaraderie and a personal stuff that developed between us and some of the higher-ups of some of the chapters. And, you know, so it, it was interesting because it sort of followed us and got us into a bit of trouble for a while. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, that that was a, a real standout through line from the, the history of the band. And uh, also, I thought it was uh, there's a, a great explanation of the, the scene that you're in in Terminator 2, because you were friends with uh, James Cameron at the time. And uh, I think you do a great job detailing that in the, uh, you know, in the book. Uh, but uh, how how often do people be like, you know, just whether they come up to you or if it's people, you know, just like, Hey, I was watching T2 again. And uh, I forgot. Yeah. You're in yeah. There. <laughs> All the time. Yeah. I get people scrap screenshots and send it to me. <laughs> this just came up on, on my cable channel, you know? Yeah. And uh, yeah, that was, that was a lot of fun and a sort of oddball off the wall kind of thing. that just happened in my life because of the friends that I had at the time. One of being Catherine Bigelow, who ends up marrying Jim Cameron, and then yeah. Jim Cameron sticks me in this movie. And it was a crazy, it was a, who knew that it would become one of the most iconic scenes of the film? So <laughs> just really a fun thing. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it, as you're describing it, I'm like, I, I haven't seen T2 in years, but I'm like, oh my God, I know exactly what he's talking about. You know, it is it is a very iconic moment. And uh, to be a part of that is great. But uh, again, you, you get to still go out there and make music. For people that want to uh, check in on the band, uh, what are the, uh, the websites and the socials? I realize that that's not in my notes and I don't want to give out the wrong information. So how do people keep tabs on whether Little Caesar will be heading to their town? Yes, do a search on Facebook, and the second one down, the first one's going to be the pizza company. Yeah. And then the second one down will be the band. You can follow us on Facebook, please, and uh, or littlecaesar.net. We never update our website, though. It's okay. always on through Facebook and Instagram as well. But, yeah, please follow us on, on, on Facebook. Yeah, up. again, to sort of point out the ineptitude of – record company people you know at that point little caesars wasn't the national chain that it is today it wasn't up there with dominoes and no pizza and it wasn't e- it wasn't even in california so we right. never even heard of it so but yeah people at the record company knew about it but they just yeah, assumed they didn't you knew it. It. Yeah, yeah, they, didn't they didn't think to mention, mention hey you know uh, again should you, should you be going out on the road with your band called papa john is that necessarily a good idea you know, so yeah, uh, it yeah. you know, there's so many of those moments where you're just like record company people, and uh, you know, it's uh, it, it's really it's the idea of 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 suits. You know, the fact that like yeah. network and and uh, movie theater executives can roll you know renovations to their office into a movie budget and you know things like yes. that. It's all it's a, <laughs> we're talking about all the different pies getting carved up earlier. Anyway, yes. Ron Young, uh, it was uh, wonderful to read the book and uh, delightful to get a chance to meet you. And uh, I, I do hope to uh, be able to catch the band somewhere down the road. Judge this book by its cover. Ron Young, uh, thank you so much uh, again for being so generous with your time. And uh, hopefully uh, thank you. see you out on the road. Uh, that's thank all the you. time we have. Uh, we'll Bye, everybody. See you thank all- you.
We'll see you all next time on the Blackcast. Thank you for listening to the Blackcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Bladcast. That's B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T. You can also subscribe to the audio version wherever podcasts are found. Like The Bladcast on Facebook, follow at Bladcast on Twitter and Instagram, and of course, the man responsible for what you just heard is on Twitter and Instagram at ChristianDMZ. I'm Farad Muhammad, and if you want me to voice your podcast intro, you can find me at Twitter and Instagram at F-A-R-D- M-U-H-A-M-M-A-D. We will see you next time on the Bladcast. No one's going to see this anyway, so I can admit this here, right? Well, this has been the Bladcast. I am your host. (laughs) You can find me at Christian DMZ. Jeff Duray, not on Twitter. The Bladcast. Welcome to the stream. Who are you? One of the best podcasts you can ever see, the Blackcast. Whoop-dee-doo, we're watching it. We got no Wi-Fi. We can't hear a thing, but we love it. Go watch the Bladcast with me and Carl. It was a great show, if I remembered it. But if I was on, it must have been great, right? Give myself a bill. Good luck with the whole thing. And, you know, here's to another 500. Get you to 1,000, you know, which is more than 500 last time I checked. Uh, and then there'll also be an episode with uh, Frank Hannon from the band Tesla, uh, where uh, we talked a lot about uh, what they have coming up. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. We're closed. Goodbye. <laughs>